Hey y'all, this is Stacey Pearsall, and you're listening to Everything, my podcast where I talk about, well, everything. Happy New Year, everybody. I am Stacey, and this is Everything, and... A little bit about Megan. My sister is here. As you know, as I promised, that... Season two, we'd be kicking off a whole new special with my sister, which is going to be great. <laughs> She's sitting here looking at me. We've got pickles at our feet, and Charlie is sleeping hard, <laughs> snoring sleeping. And Andy is off to an appointment, so we won't have Andy today, but I feel like Megan is going to make up for the loss of my better half. Well, we'll see about that. Andy's pretty funny, so... Andy is pretty funny. I think you're pretty good, too. I don't know. It's interesting sitting here and talking to a microphone instead <laughs> of people. So um, just trying to think about putting it out there and talking to other people with just this microphone sitting in front of you kind of it's puts intimi- you on the spot. Is it intimidating? <laughs> a little bit. Well, just just concentrate on talking to me. I think that helps. But just know that there is a wider world out there who... Just wants to know a little bit about the lives that we lead and mainly Charlie fans who want to know a little bit more about what goes around on around him. And anyway, I appreciate you uh, saying that you do the podcast. When mom was here visiting, she absolutely flat out refused. I think it, it puts her on the spot with her medical condition where she has a hard time doing recall. And I think that it for her, it's a struggle to put herself out there mm-hmm. um, because she's afraid of embarrassing herself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the good thing is, many, many of the listeners don't even know. So I haven't, I haven't talked about mom's condition. And you probably, as a nurse, you probably know better than what that condition really entails. But I will say this, I have traumatic brain injury. I have a hard time finding words. And sometimes I feel embarrassed about skipping up or sometimes I, I blank out. And I know that's intimidating. And I was trying to get it across to mom. Like it can be kind of liberating to just let things flow and, and accept that part of you. Because for so long I, I didn't. But I think for mom, I can see that that would be very intimidating. Well, I think it's the part of her brain that's affected that affects with her emotion and it just makes her really, really sensitive mm-hmm. um, to things and, and putting her, putting herself out there and stumbling for words or having a hard time with recall just really, really knocks her down a couple of pegs yeah. and makes her really self-conscious about her illness. Yeah. So it's understandable. Well, I mean, on that note, because I haven't talked about what mom's illness is, maybe we should explain to the listeners I, all I know is that mom has an autoimmune disorder and that it affects the brain kind of like meningitis. It mm-hmm. mimics that. It's very rare. And she's had a, an aneurysm surgery and that's kind of clunked on her brain a little bit. So I, I guess that that, like traumatic brain injury, if it affects the brain and it affects the, as you say, the recall or the, the finding of words and balance and all that good stuff. Right, yeah. right. So I can relate to that a lot. I mean, I think she has it a lot harder than I do. I've overcome, I've I've worked past a lot of that and with Charlie's help too. But at any rate, hopefully maybe mom's next visit, I I can convince her to sit down like you are with me today. Mom, honestly, it's not that bad, I promise. Mom, we love you. I know you're listening. And you have the full support of your two daughters. And of course, the world who's listening. At any rate... Many people um, know about you because I've talked about you on my podcast and that you're a major inspiration to me. And I will say that was not always the case because you were <laughs> you were my older sister. You were rough uh, at times, always loving. But I, the things I remember growing up is when we were learning to swim, I used you as my buoy. Yes. And <laughs> I think I may have nearly drowned you a couple of times. A few times. I remember drawing a line in the sand, the proverbial sand in the car, saying that this half was my half and this half was your half. Though I will say, you're the one who established the boundaries to begin with. Yes. And you had very long, sharp nails, and I still hold the scars on my arm. I think it's every family 
who has children, more than one child, but especially when you have children that are very, very close in age, there's always going to be some kind of sibling rivalry. Mm -hmm. And I think that mom set us out of the gate dressing us identically the same only in different colors yeah uh we always celebrated our birthdays together so trying to find that your own separation and your own identity was always (laughs) such a struggle when you have this little this other person that's constantly in your space constantly sharing your day and wandering around with you and your friends Mm -hmm. it's like oh my gosh yeah go do your own thing kid so yes, we used to we used to fight like cats and dogs, mm. and we would pull out the nails. And I remember biting. Yeah, um, biting biter. became a thing, um, especially on long car rides. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh my goodness! I was a snake biter. I think I used to twist your skin. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that used to, you used to drive me crazy. But I guess I had no other. I mean, you were my only friend. I felt I felt like for for a long time. It's ironic that we loathed. Sharing a birthday because we are a year and four days apart. Loathed it because, as you say, you want to have your day in the sun. But now, as adults, we choose voluntarily to get together, whether it's my place, your place, or somewhere we haven't been, for our birthdays. We have to celebrate our birthdays together. (laughs) So I think that's kind of silly. When you were talking about mom dressing us alike... Immediately, what came to mind was the crocheted dresses we had. Uh-huh. Do you remember how itchy that yes, was? Yes, I do. I was I was looking at the picture the other day of us and our. They were so cute. Those dresses were absolutely adorable. And I just see the look on my the look on my face and my head's all crunched in and my shoulders because all I could think about was how itchy that dress was and how ready I was to get out of the darn thing. Mm-hmm. They were so cute, but I. Don't know what those things were made out of. Uh, acrylic? I don't know. It was so itchy. They were very cute. I did I did look like a little doll. I, I actually looked more like, like a stuffed doll with a little round plastic head on top. And the crochet, if I could describe it for a moment, what I remember is it's like A-line dress mm-hmm. with little cap sleeves. And it was it like baby blue? Yours or- was like a, a mint like a mint green, and mm-hmm. then mine was kind of, I want to say like a navy. Navy blue is a darker color. It was a lot darker than yours was. Who crocheted those? Grandma? Grandma. Wow. Grandma, thank you for the torture device. But we have a series of photos of us dressed in identical <laughs> but different colored outfits. One that stands out to me, you shared with me recently, was a picture of us in our Western gear. I was so proud of those shirts, though, because we, you know, growing growing up and being raised with a single mother who worked her darn butt off to provide for us had its limitations when it came to the horses. I mean, it's anybody who owns horses knows how expensive it is to maintain them. Mm-hmm. And mom busted her hump just to be able to give us that opportunity to own and raise horses, but we were on our own when it came to our endeavors showing. So we had to buy our own tack. We had to make our own show clothes and the shirts that we made, man, truly 90s. Oh, very 90s. Like geometric design. Your colors were, you went with turquoise yes. for your barn color. And it's still my favorite color. It is. Yep. I went with red, though that's not my favorite color and not ironically my barn is red now that i think about it so maybe it did seep through (laughs) wow i did not realize that anyway so we had these sort of white western tuxedo shirts and this sort of black mine was black and red geometric designs i think we made those didn't we we? like like iron on yes um i can't remember if we bedazzled them we did we added we added some jewels or some rhinestones or something to them yeah it was absolutely crazy we we made a few of those show shirts but they turned out really darn good i think i will say this mom i think we inherited mom's genes for creativity in in artistry and um you're a big time crocheter Ironically, are you crocheting baby dresses now? No, I am not crocheting baby dresses. I don't do a lot of a lot of baby clothes. No, period. But you do these plush animals, and I'm looking over um, in my office right now to a little plush corgi you crocheted for me. Was that for? It was a gift from last year. It was last year's mm-hmm. gift. Yep, in celebration of of the corgis. Yeah, that you we and both I. Love. Here's the thing: when we were kids, 
we were obviously under the same household for what 17 18 years mm -hmm. you you joined the service and then i shortly after and sadly our military careers never really cost paths and then you got out of the service and i went far afield too we always tended to have a whole continent between us nonetheless we found out later as adults and finally having time to be able to spend our birthdays together that we had very like interests where i love corgis I fell in love with corgis when I was stationed in England. Where did you discover corgis? Just have always had a passion for them. I um, had a friend who raised corgis, and I just used to love to go visit them. They just have such great personalities, and I just think they're so darn adorable. They are. Pickles is amazing. He's, he's passed out at our feet. You guys can't see him, but... He's laid out on his side. He needs a brushing today. That's happening. I was eating his hair last night in bed. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, so you're in the guest room, and Pickles is the guest puppy. For anybody who's a dog person that comes to visit us, Pickles is the you know the guy who goes and spoons the guests. And um, you got a mouthful of hair. I so did. He wanted, he wanted snugglies, and we were spooning, and I was stroking him and ended up inhaling a bunch of corgi uh, magical fibers is what yeah, I call them. <laughs> th those are magical sprinkles. And if you're if you're a corgi lover, you don't care. No, you don't. You just embrace that. That's right. I remember on a visit out to Oregon, I discovered that you like to watch the same movie every night, which I am in the habit of as well. And like that's something when you're getting ready to wind down for the day and you're in bed and you just kind of want to relax and you have background noise. Something that you've seen a billion times helps you go to sleep. Right now I'm on a Oceans, it's either Oceans 11 or Oceans 13. I can literally quote that movie, but I go to sleep to that most nights because my husband is now, um, had has been conditioned to also fall asleep to Oceans. I'm trying to shift that to a different movie now because I'm really <laughs> bored of it. Anyway, I digress. So out of your place, you were watching, I think it was BBC's version of Emma, which is an amazing book uh, by Jane Austen. I'm a big Jane Austen fan. I, I particularly like Pride and Prejudice is one of my favorites and I've watched every version of it though I will say the BBC version of that is my favorite. Yeah. The, the mom's voice is very shrill which makes me crazy but I do love uh, the other characters. You like Emma. It's strange though we were never introduced to Jane Austen as children. Mom never said here's Jane Austen but we discovered her in our adulthood and then found out that we had that like interest. Where do you think that came from? I have absolutely no clue where that came from. I think I have loved Jane Austen since I was in my 20s. And so it was like anytime any new Jane Austen remake came out, um, everybody's version, I think I've seen just about everything. But you introduced me this visit to the BBC Pride and Prejudice, which was pretty good. Yeah, I like it. Colin Firth, you can't go wrong. Right. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> well, that moment when he jumps in the water. If you haven't taken the time to watch the six-part series of the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice. And you have a lot of time on your hands. <laughs> it's a rainy day and you're stuck in for COVID. Watch Pride and Prejudice. We've been, we've been watching it as we work on a quilting project together. And there, and there you have it. Another, another like interest. I don't, I found that I loved sewing. I was very intimidated, intimidated by the idea of the sewing machine because I really still cannot figure out how the thread from the bottom on the bottom gets through the top. I still can't figure that out. It trips my mind out. I, I, I'm working through it. However, I, I wanted to learn to sew and my, my really good friend Trish sews. And I was like, please show me. So she kind of showed me the fundamentals. And then another really great friend of mine, Nancy Austin, who lives in Syracuse, is a master sewer. Like she's a master quilter. Everything she touched turns to gold. So whenever I go up there um, to, to talk at Syracuse University, I stay with my good friend Nancy. And she so obligingly teaches me these tools and techniques. And I was excited because I finally learned to, to use the sewing machine. And Grandma Ann is also a very mm -hmm. great sewer and she loves to quilt. When she came down during the winters to visit Andy and me, we would do some sort of knitting project together or a sewing project. Now, you came down for our birthdays, grandma was here, and we worked on a little, a, a small quilting project together, which was absolutely fantastic. And by we, I mean you and grandma. <laughs> 
You had a little hand in it. You, you helped out. I pinned squares, I think. Um, I was still very intimidated. I didn't want to mess up the project. But it was really wonderful watching you work with Grandma. And I think that too, like where where we come from, like genetically, is <laughs> it's really interesting how that's passed on. Do your kids show any inclination of creative outlet? I think in different ways they do. Sienna is very artistic. She has a lot of creativity. So I think that she is very much my daughter. It's hard for me to teach her, though, because I'm left-handed. Everything I do is backwards. And so it's really difficult as a lefty to try to teach a righty. Mm Mm-hmm. How to do things so we've we've struggled a little bit i think i gave her some essentials on how to figure stuff out and she just goes off and learns her own thing Bo is creative in a different type of way i think as male he is creative in how he builds stuff he is willing to try just about anything and everything when it comes to Stuff like uh, graphic design. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was doing 3D printing. He for was, a while, right? yeah. He was doing 3D printing. Um, metal he has cutting, a right? huge interest. Yeah, metal cutting. He has a huge interest in welding, mm. and he has a, a great ag teacher at school. That's who, agricultural for yeah. your non-ag folks. <laughs> who uh, who definitely gives him ideas and inspirations, and he takes off with it. So he's not creative in the fact of sewing or knitting or crocheting. And more domestic. That's right. He's yeah. he's um, creative in he if he sees something that he wants to try to build, he'll he'll go for it. That's awesome. And I want to learn to weld actually. Right. Our stepdad Vic um, brought an arc welder down, and that's what we were supposed to learn this winter was welding. But mom fell and broke her foot, so that kind of delayed their trip. But I'm I'm well, holding well. out hope that I can actually still learn to weld. I don't know what I'm going to sculpt first. I know that Vic and I actually want to build some wagons together. So when you move here, and by the way, everybody, my sister is on a five-year track to move to South Carolina. She owns the property next to mine. That's right. We just bought, what, 15 acres uh, right next door. And I love coming out here and just envisioning what it'll be like when we we move here. Mm -hmm. So Maybe you'll have to get in on the welding projects with us. I'd love to weld. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm very, very basic. I've, I've watched a lot, and my husband and my son have you know, given me some tips, but I like to try anything new. I will give anything a go, that is for sure. Yeah. I have a bedazzler in the closet. We can get the shirts out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's let's make ourselves some, some cool show some cool shirts. Sh- let's, ma- let's go out and match. <laughs> we can get some, some white Western shirts, and we can start matching, and we can go out on the town. Right. Sisters. Oh. Now, your goal, like... I, okay, you're a registered nurse. For anybody out there, my sister has done labor and delivery for 15 years. Oh my gosh, longer it's, than that. Uh, it's it's oh my gosh, I graduated from nursing school in 07. So, damn, yeah. you're old. Yep. But your um, L and D closed, so you had to go into the emergency room for a while. But you're back in L and D right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, living where I do in Central Oregon, I have a very uh, wide array of what I can do in regards to my nursing profession. And I started my nursing career, well, even before I was a nurse, as a nurse's aide at a critical access hospital. And if you don't know what that is, it's just a, a small hospital with a very limited amount of beds mm-hmm. throughout the entire facility. And working at a tiny hospital gives you a lot of opportunity to work in specialty areas. Mm. So I did pretty much everything. Med surge is where I started. And then from med surge, I got an opportunity to ICU and then emergency room and then labor and delivery. So I opted to go to the bigger hospital and do labor and delivery several years ago. And then they closed our unit. Mm. But just over a year and a half ago. So yeah. I went back to the emergency room and then realized how much I miss delivering babies. So I went back to the critical access hospital where I'm now delivering babies again. Well, I know from a time, no, t- any time I can remember that you always t- talked about wanting children. You always talked about wanting to do nursing or something in the healthcare um, profession. I, at least that, that's what I remember, like in the young, like in 20s. Now, you didn't go directly to that path. You went into the military mm-hmm. and completely unrelated to medical fields. I thought you would be like some sort of dental tech or, 
you know, some sort of medical assistant, but you didn't. Tell me about your, your choices. Well, you know, um, as far back as I can remember, and I think mom can attest to this, I talked about wanting to be a nurse. I think that probably goes back to like fifth, sixth grade. Mm -hmm. I made comments about how I wanted to be a nurse and mom used to, (laughs) mom used to chuckle at me because she was like, oh, Megan. I have no clue how you'd be a nurse when you cannot handle the sight of blood because anytime you would end up hurt, (laughs) I was over there about ready to pass out. Uh I could not handle the sight of blood, but you know, eventually you get over it, you move past it and Mm -hmm. now it's just totally second nature and I can see a lot of blood. You caused most of that blood on me, you know? (laughs) I did not. You were the most accident prone person on this planet. Oh, hold on. Remember that morning the three wheelers parked down on the hill out, out on the farm and it was it was slick out and you and I were racing whoever could get to the three wheeler first was the winner we had we had limited options as to what we could go do to do chores and you could ride the dirt bike mm-hmm. which neither one of us did very well walk obviously and who the heck wants to walk or ride the three wheeler and the three wheeler was just a blast to play with mm-hmm. but yes we used to fight over that thing like Cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. So I I did not cause your accident. You <laughs> opted to run down the dewy-covered hill versus me who took the stairs. <laughs> and you totally slid right underneath that thing and filleted open your leg down, pretty much down to the bone. That mm-hmm. was nasty yeah. on the chain under yeah. the three-wheeler. That was gross. Yeah. Yes. And I was just like, bleh, bleh. You were screaming, go get mom. I need help. Yeah. You were the most accident prone person that just cracks me up. I but did I did roller skate down that yes. same hill and, and hit the broad side of a barn. These genius ideas, I have no clue where these came from. Um, I don't know. I just like to have fun. You and I um, would ride our horses up and down the road. We'd go, to, we'd go all the way down to the neighbor's house and he lived three miles yeah, down the road. Several miles down the road. A not... shout out to Heath Hyden. Hey, Heath Hyden, if you're listening <laughs> out there, thanks for entertaining two farm girls. But um, no, so you wanted to do nursing, but you joined the Air Force instead. Yeah. How well, did... you know, I was never academically inclined. And I, I want to say it was probably the same with you. I don't know what it is about school. I had a learning disability that was that I was diagnosed with early as a child. And so I chronically struggled with math with English and my grades were not the best and I barely graduated high school and that was a combination of my academics and then my extracurricular extracurricular activities in high school I was if I can interject you were kind of a late a late bloomer you were late to the uh the high school shenanigans I was and I think that's probably did not help your academic career. No, it did not. I got mine done pretty early. You did. I, yes. I was by by sophomore year I was You were partied out. On, I was partied out. <laughs> and I got my I got my start like my sophomore year. So Yeah, we kind of reversed roles. I did. Yeah. yeah. And then you threw me under the bus. But I, we won't go there <laughs> today. So yeah, I um I looked at nursing school colleges in in like my junior year of high school and realized very quickly that there was ex actually no way I was going to be able to pay for college. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no way. Mom couldn't afford it. I knew that I was going to be on my own on having to pay for school and got really, really discouraged at the fact of how much college actually costs. And because it's, it's absolutely absurd. And so I got really discouraged as how, how am I going to get to this end point of wanting to be a nurse? Mm Mm-hmm. And having come from such deep roots in the military, um, I started talking to Uncle Joe. And Uncle Joe, you know, gave me direction and really helped guide me as to enlisting in the military, mm-hmm. and especially the Air Force, and figuring out what kind of job to get. And of course, that all starts in high school. We mm-hmm. take our ASVAB mm-hmm. tests, right, which determines your aptitude. So you were mechanically inclined? Yes, it's it to me in my mind absolutely nuts that my highest scores were in mechanics. That's yeah. crazy. So I would have loved to enlisted in the Air Force to be trained as a nurse, mm-hmm. but the ASVAB score said 
yeah, mechanics is what you need to do. And uh, I decided that, you know, I was never really planning on making the Air Force a career. Mm -hmm. It was an end point to me getting to what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Now, if the Air Force would have been willing to train me as a nurse, maybe it was something that I would have considered doing as a career, Mm -hmm. staying in the military. But for me, it was the GI Bill. I needed the GI Bill to pay for college. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to look at all the different jobs in the mechanical field, and I'm going to find the coolest darn thing to do for four years. (laughs) And Uncle Joe gave me a big list. And for those of you that don't know, Uncle Joe was in charge of uh, new recruit job assignments down Mm -hmm. at Lackland Air Force Base. So he was a plethora of information. And so he gave me a gigantuan list of things I could do. Age mechanic, jet mechanic, in-flight refueling. Oh my goodness. That would have been a cool job. Yeah, that actually was my first choice. Huh. So, you know, we have to pick three jobs that you want to do. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to do in-flight refueling. Mm-hmm. That was my number one, with my second being a jet mechanic, a crew chief in the Air Force. So I started going down the road of the testing requirements for in-flight refueling, and I very quickly failed. Well, I mean, you've got to basically fly the plane. As the, as the refueler and the boom operator? I I do not have the greatest eyes. And that is oh, yeah. that was immediately what set me back was my very poor depth perception that I didn't realize <laughs> I had an issue with oh, until no. I had this test. So done. how do you possibly quilt? <laughs> I have a magnifying do you, do glass. Do you stab your finger every time? I do, I do. So obviously boom operator was off, it off was, the table. It was almost instantaneous. I mean, you, you know, you have to go through... Um, which I'm sure you did once you enlisted as a, as a photographer in the Air Force, when you start going through your specialty training to be able to do your job, just like with in-flight refueling, before you're even allowed to enlist, you have to meet the requirements to be able to do the job. Mm -hmm. And the vision test was the very first thing. And it was like, sorry, you failed the depth perception. You Mm. do not qualify. Mm -hmm. So I had to move on and determine what else I was going to do. And, uh, I really like the idea of jet mechanics. Um, I, how many people can say in their lifetime that they were jet mechanic in the Air Force? Well, uh, if I could say, how many women? Right. Even fewer, I would think. Yeah, yeah. So I decided to enlist as a crew chief, um, which does pretty much everything. Uh, launch, recovery, refueling maintenance inspections so you cover the plane from front to back Mm -hmm. Uh, so i had to pick out what airframe i wanted to work on Mm because there's so many different planes in the air force so many different options airframes to work on anything from fighter planes to your heavies Mm -hmm. you know c-130s kc-135s were all an option and i was like i don't want to work on those big birds i want to be a jet mechanic so, you know, my uncle said, well, you got your F-15s, your F-16s, and then you got the A-10. And I remember the A-10 from the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. And I said, that is the baddest plane out there. That's the plane I'm going to work on. So I enlisted as an A-10 crew chief. Mm-hmm. I pre-enlisted my junior year of high school as a A-10 crew chief, mm-hmm. which I ended up finding out later that I was the first active duty female to actually enlist as an A-10 crew chief. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not other A-10 crew chiefs out there that are that are ladies. Mm-hmm. I When I did my follow-on training down at uh, DM, Davis Mountain, there was a female A-10 crew chief down there. And then I, when I did my training, there was a air guardsman guard lady, I should say, out of Utah, okay. um, who was there training as an A-10 crew chief. So, so. A, whole, a whole two people. Yes, two well, other ladies. How was that for you? It was interesting. You know, I, I want to say that I was a tomboy growing up. We hung out with a lot of boys. We did. We yeah. did not circulate much with the with the girls. So I felt like I was in my groove in the fact that I got to hang out with guys, which is my comfort zone. So it was, it was interesting. Mm -hmm. You had 
you know, new airmen who are similar in age to you, which was great. And then you had some really old school patriarchal. Yeah. Women belong at home. I, I struggled right out of the right out of the gate when I was down in Wichita Falls for for school, for tech school. My instructor pretty much started right out of the gate that I didn't belong there. I didn't belong. I was only in the Air Force to find a husband. I I um, was never going to succeed. And it was something that I heard routinely. Yeah. Yeah. Which you were husband hunting. I was. Which is sad. I mean, as an 18-year-old kid who grew up with a single mom, mm-hmm. you know, we we had it ingrained in our heads. If you put your mind to it, you're going to succeed, right? Sure. You yeah. know, and, and you always tried your hardest at whatever you did. Mm-hmm. You applied yourself. And it was kind of a beatdown as an 18-year-old to have somebody who you should look up to tell you that you aren't going to be successful. So it made me try harder. It made me strive to prove him wrong. Right. I think it was really interesting that you say that because, you know, mom never, never brought up the fact that we had any limitations due to our gender. At least I don't remember. I don't either. I think she always empowered us to be whatever we wanted to be. You get what you put, you get back what you put out. And I think it wasn't until I joined the service that I realized that my gender was going to be holding me back or that other people looked at my gender as something that could potentially hold me back. And it's interesting that you had a like experience. And I wonder if all other women veterans, well, I suppose it really depends on your background, your upbringing, how you were raised, the ideology that was instilled in you and, and how, how that could be a little bit of a, a jarring experience having somebody else throw what they see as limitations at your face, never knowing that that could have been. But you persevered. I mean, you you said even with a learning disability, even with, you know, this establishment, sort of anti-female establishment, kind of trying to hold you back, you made it through. So what would you say was the biggest factors that, that got you through all of that experience? Without saying, like, screw this, I'm done, I don't need this nonsense. I, I'm a diehard go get them type of person. I do not like being told I can't do something. Mm -hmm. I think it makes me strive even harder Mm -hmm. to prove somebody wrong. So yeah, I I made it through tech school. I made it through follow on training and I got my orders to, to go to Alaska, Isleson Air Force Base to, to be assigned to the 355th. And uh, I looked at my other classmates. There was five of us all together and I everybody had orders to go somewhere fun somebody stayed at Davis Monthan somebody went to Georgia there was a squadron at the time in Georgia and then somebody got to go overseas to Germany and I was like anybody anybody want to trade I've been to Alaska <laughs> our dad lived there yeah. 17 years I was like this is only going to be a one-time thing for me I want to go somewhere I've never been sure yeah, I got my permanent duty assignment to Eilson, which mm, is freezing. Cold. Maybe, you know, 30, 40 minutes right down the road from where dad and Ann used to live. Yeah. So uh, nobody wanted to trade. Nobody wanted to take on that, yes, that chilly, freezing Arctic weather yeah. to but go to Alaska. The summers are so grand. They are. Well, they are. And Alaska is beautiful. And I, but I just, I wanted to go somewhere I, I was never given an opportunity to go to ultimately you did though you went to what Al Jabbar yeah yeah so I I got stationed at Eilson and um, I went to Al Jabbar Air Base it was supposed to be our that's Kuwait correct yes Mm -hmm. yeah Um, it was supposed to be our 90-day rotation and this was established after the Gulf War to help maintain the southern no-fly zone Mm -hmm. keep Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait prevent him from invading Kuwait again and so we would I want to say it was a yearly rotation Mm -hmm. that the squadron would do for 90 days to Air Force likes to keep them short yeah we're like we don't need to do your long deployments (laughs) so (laughs) yeah thank you Air Force we went we went to Kuwait in 98 and what was supposed to be 90 days ended up getting extended because Saddam did 
break the southern no-fly zone, and we ended up in Operation... Desert Fox. Desert Fox, that's right. And and I, I at that time, by that time, I should say, rather, had enlisted. Yes. And I had gone to photography school in the hopes that I would actually be a photographer. Instead, they sent me into the YouTube program, and then I ended up at Offit. And like you, I wanted to go somewhere else I'd never been. And they, they, in their infinite wisdom, sent me right back like three hours from mom's house. Anyway, I was working in the intelligence unit there. And while you were in Desert Fox with your unit, attacking targets and stuff like that, we were the ones creating them and, and then doing assessments afterwards. So I think it's interesting how connected we were, but still a half a world away. That's right. Other. That's right. What was your experience in Kuwait like? It was um, it was definitely a cultural shock. Mm-hmm. As a woman in a predominantly male field, working alongside Kuwaiti men mm. was, was interesting. You know, they had their own area on the flight line, but we had our jets parked right next to theirs and so when they would see me i would get hand gestures and uh, define hand gestures um well i think it's pretty universal hand gestures <laughs> or like tune in tokyo or or more like two finger kind of gestures more like two finger kind oh, of gestures. oh that's classy yes yeah so you know and then they would be yelling stuff at me obviously in arabic so i i didn't understand it but i got the gist that they did not like the fact that i was there oh I had a... How dare you? I know. You and your filthy vagina (sighs) out there on that flight line. That's right. I I had one incident. You're on the fart chair. I'm on the fart chair, the spooky chair here. (laughs) And even though there's a pillow and a blanket on there, everybody, still squeaking. My sister is not farting. She's on the fart chair. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I had a, a incident while on the flight line and we were doing, you know, sorties 24 hours a day, leaflet bombing mm-hmm. um, Baghdad. And so I was doing a between flight inspection. And so the jets would like rotate where we would park them. And I was right behind the F-18s of the Kuwaitis. And I was on the wing of the jet doing my uh, between flight inspection. And this uh, Kuwaiti pilot comes out and... He's giving me hand gestures. He's yelling stuff at me. He's got his crew chief, you know, in tow, right behind him. Um, he hops into the cockpit and fires up the jet. And <laughs> he blows you off the wing? Tries to blow me off the wing. Wow. Like Classy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I finished what I was doing. I got off my jet. And I went inside. And uh, <laughs> I said, hey, chief. Um. Well, I don't have a problem being here, and I think this is a, a a manageable situation. I think that my jet should be parked at the other end because it's really difficult for me to try to do my job when people are trying to physically hurt me. Mm-hmm. So he was obliging and, and kept my plane on the other end so I didn't have to deal with that. Well, that's but, big of you. I know. Because you could have definitely lashed out. You could have brought down, I'm sure some sort of response from the Americans to the Kuwaiti, but um, you're a bigger, you're a bigger woman than, than most, I suppose. I, um, I chuckle. We had a, uh, I remember being out on the flight line and we had to carry, carry our chem gear with us, you know, because we, of our threats and whatnot. And we had bunkers set up right off the flight line. And, I remember just getting to work one morning. I had just dropped my chem bag to head out to the flight line and do my inspection on my plane. And you hear this huge kabang and like the earth shook. Mm-hmm. And we're all looking at each other and we're like, what the hell was that? Mm-hmm. And then we got the alarm to go hit the bunkers. And they're supposed to be our bunkers for the U.S soldiers right so we grab our chem gear we don our chem gear we head off to the bunker and you see the kuwaitis just bailing out of the hangers in their underwear because they like sleep in the hangers and stuff they're trying to throw their pants on and the first place they come running is right into our bunkers Mm -hmm. to take shelter with us and 
Um, I don't think that they realized that they were sitting next to a woman until, you know, everything was done and over with. And then there was just a lot of jabbering in Arabic sure. and ready to bail out of there. Mm-hmm. It was it was a little comical. Wow. Were they all in fart chairs? No. <laughs> <laughs> was there a time in your career, whether you were at war back in Alaska or um, that you felt like you had a breakthrough with your fe- your fellow male counterparts and they said, yeah, women are deserving of a chance in this field or was there any moment like that for you or was it always pushback? I think that the, the guys that were my age were very accepting. Mm-hmm. I mean, our generation is pretty accepting of cross-gender roles mm-hmm. and... I had never, I had never experienced any problems with guys that were around our age. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the older gentlemen, and especially the the uh, career military, who did not work with a lot of females that were reticent to. I don't want to say be welcoming, but you know, you could sense the uncomfortable um, situation. With some of the guys, uh, and not everybody, but just a couple of guys. But mm-hmm. they never physically or verbally put that out there that I wasn't welcome. Mm-hmm. My squadron in Alaska, um, the 355th, was was really good to me and accommodating to some of the things that I had to go through. Because I um, had gotten pregnant and lost my baby when I was about three months pregnant and had a lot of issues and complications with that miscarriage. And Chief brought me a dozen roses from the guys at work. Tell me how sympathetic they were to to my loss. And Can we dive into that for a second? Because I think that's an interesting part of your narrative and your story is that you kind of, you fell in love, you got pregnant. What was your decision-making in hiding or concealing your pregnancy, do you think that the the idea of that, that initial instructor saying you were husband hunting or that you had an agenda had any influence, that sort of attitude? And um, can you kind of walk me through what those, those days and those months oh. were like? That was the most difficult thing I've ever been through in my entire life. I felt like I was in a rock and a hard place and... You know, I was, you know, 19 years old and, you know, hadn't been away from home very long. And I was put in this really difficult situation where I had fallen in love with, you know, fellow crew chief who lived across the hall from me in the dorms. And it was a fairly new relationship. And even though, even though I was on birth control, I ended up pregnant and... I was scared out of my mind for numerous reasons. It was such a new relationship and and having watched her mother go through divorce, I was not eager into jumping into a marriage. A shotgun situation. It was, yeah. yeah. But the military leaves it very difficult for a single woman to be a parent, mm-hmm. a single parent. And so... That being the old adage that if they wanted you to have your family, they would have issued it to you. Right. So I, I had all sorts of things going through my mind. And I know that I talked to you on the telephone about it. I talked to mom on the telephone about it. But yeah, everything that was going through my head as far as as far as far my job in the Air Force was I was now totally f- fulfilling my instructor's... Prophetic words. That's right. Yeah. That I was not going to be successful. That I was only in the Air Force to find a husband, which just made me feel like a huge failure. Mm-hmm. It was it was really difficult. I remember only a very little bit of the conversations we had then, and I remember you intimating something of that nature, that, that you were failing as an airman, and that, and I, I can't remember what I said in response to that, but I know, like, looking at that situation... It's not like you did it on purpose. 
No. It's not like, I'm going to get off this pill and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this guy on the hook. It wasn't anything like that because your career was so much to you, especially so early on and having just started. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it, to me, it felt soul crushing. It did. It, it felt very, very defeating. I uh, was just so hard on myself. I, I think I was my own worst critic. That's for sure. And I went and bounced everything off of Dusty, my now husband, in regards to, you know, I don't I don't want to say anything to anybody until we have some kind of solution to my situation. I don't want to rush into a marriage just because I'm pregnant. But the Air Force wasn't going to give me base housing and let me co-parent my baby with my boyfriend. I had base housing threatening to permanently lose my housing privileges if they found out that Dusty was living in base housing with me and we weren't married. Mm -hmm. So that knocked out base housing because how can I co-parent with the baby's dad if he's not allowed to stay at the house? It it just made no sense to me. So then Dusty and I went and uh, pursued living off base and anybody who's ever lived in Alaska knows how expensive the cost of living is up there. Eielson is far enough outside of Fairbanks that you got to find something in North Pole, Alaska, or right around Eielson, mm-hmm. because you don't want to make that commute from Fairbanks to Eielson in the wintertime. Yeah. Um, and in so I think the best thing that we could find as airmen <laughs> off base housing was a studio apartment, a crappy studio apartment with some horrific mold growing in there. Mm-hmm. And I I was like, this, we can't do this. I think the other place that we found was a cabin Mm -hmm. that had no running water Mm -hmm. and an outhouse. (laughs) I was like, I can't do this. We can't, we can't do this. So we opted after beating the bush, so to speak, um, trying to find any solution we could. We opted to get married with the justice of the peace. And we had a, a handful of people there, a couple of friends and we got married and that's when i told that's when i told my squadron about my pregnancy was like right after i got married mm-hmm. so i finally got taken off the flight line but i was what maybe about 12 weeks pregnant mm-hmm. at that point mm-hmm. something like that yeah so about 12 mo- weeks three, yeah, months? three months yeah and uh it wasn't even Two, three weeks after I got married that I lost my baby. I remember that. And I feel like, as a nurse now, I feel like all of the stress that I went through, all of the worrying and fretting over how I was going to manage my situation caused me to terminate my pregnancy. The 42-year-old Megan, what would she say to the 19-year-old Megan? It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth stressing about. I think the older I've gotten and the more maturity and life experiences I've had, I think I did the best I could in the situation I was in. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was worth that much stress and anxiety and, and still causes me to have emotional responses because of how I fretted over everything it's difficult yeah so i would say to myself you know it is what it is and it's not the end of life and there's always going to be other opportunities out there Mm -hmm. so you know after i went through that experience you know i'm i'm 19 years old going on 20 still new to my base I've been thrusted into this marriage um, after only being together for such a short period of time. I had a lot of, I don't want to say fears, but, you know, I mean, anxiety as to, okay, we rushed into this marriage because I'm pregnant. Now I'm not pregnant. Was this the right decision to make? Mm-hmm. We're so young. We're both so young. And now I got to get back into the groove of things to try to prove myself to my squadron that I I am dedicated to being mm. successful. The Air Force asked a lot of you. First of all, 
They set up the gauntlet to make you make you above everybody else. Of course, everybody has to earn their medal in the military. But I think women particularly have to go that extra mile um, because we have these extra outside forces and the burdens we put on ourselves. And I think often the expect the higher expectations we put on ourselves as women can be an even heavier burden to bear than than what are that what these outside forces are putting on us. And then you you find yourself in this situation, as you said, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy and you're you're hiding it for all the other for all the other people you're hiding it because of them or or the, again those uh, those pressures you're putting on yourself internally and then the air force is saying no we're not going to accommodate you so they're making it extra hard for you to actually do the right thing and then suddenly you lose the baby and now that's on on your your own like morality did you do things right and i think we have these times in our lives, these coulda, woulda, shouldas, and I, I have my own, I, I look at that burden that you're carrying because that was a life. So whose responsibility was it? I don't think, and I know that you're, you've come, you're coming to terms or you're, maybe you're still coming to terms with that, but I don't think that that burden was solely on you. I think there was a lot of responsibility. We as a society were, were just as responsible because we taught or we influenced our young boys to think that that women were less than or have certain parameters that we as a military have these parameters in place that the perfect family was a married family or you know that that only young women were joining the military for husband hunting so i guess i look at the bigger picture and i think what can we do as a society so that no young woman has to be in the shoes that you found yourself what can we do? Well, I think first it starts with the education of our young men and women in our house. We as parents, mm -hmm. we say, you girls, you can be whatever you want, like our mom did. Mm -hmm. And you boys, you can be whatever you want. You can be a nurse mm -hmm. and you could be a stay at home dad. That's right. And, you know, I think setting aside all of these sort of gender roles, that is number one. Number two if, if I'm not messing around in your backyard and telling you what to do, stop trying to tell me what to do and stop trying to push your ideology and your beliefs on me and vice versa. And the Air Force has come a long way, I think, since you or I enlisted. And I think you were right to an extent in saying that the men of our generation were a lot more accepting. But it does take one and bad apple. Right. And so identifying the bad apple and giving them some education and, and changing that. I think I look at situations like you found yourself and I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. It, it crushes me. And I remember um, you calling and you were crying on the phone. You're not one to show your emotions very easily. And um, I was miles away. I was in Omaha and you were in Alaska and you said you had aborted the baby and that, that was far enough along and that you could feel that. Yeah. And I, and I hurt for you. I, was angry for you. I was angry that the Air Force pushed you into that situation. Looking back, I also feel like some things happened for a reason. Had you not lost that baby, Sienna wouldn't be here. Right. And I love Sienna. She's my niece and my goddaughter. And had you not lost that baby, you would not have had Sienna. Had you not had Sienna, you wouldn't have pursued your nursing career. So I feel like all of these really shitty things that happen in our lives are a stepping stone to something so much bigger than we could ever imagine. Do you feel the same? I do. I do feel the same. And like I was saying, I think it's um, just age and maturity. You know, when one door closes, another one opens. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I had lost that baby and then it wasn't even three months later. And I'm telling you, my husband and I are the most fertile people on the planet. <laughs> so despite the fact that I was on birth control, not once, but twice did I end up pregnant mm -hmm. while on birth control. Wow. Potent. Yes. Potent so while Sienna wasn't necessarily planned, I was super excited when I got pregnant with her. And I think that that, that pregnancy to me showed me 
I didn't need the Air Force to tell me how to live my life. Mm-hmm. I always wanted children, and I felt like this was this was God speaking to me, telling me this is what was meant to happen. Mm-hmm. I was meant to be a mother, mm-hmm. <laughs> regardless of what I was doing to prevent that at the time. Yeah, And so I opted to separate from the Air Force before my four-year enlistment was up mm-hmm. so I could be a mom. Mm-hmm. I wanted to stay at home and raise my raise my child and not have to worry about if my husband and I got deployed because we worked together, if we got deployed together where I was going to send my child in a short notice. And so me getting out of the Air Force then kind of pushed me into, all right, so what's what's the next step in my life? You know, I want I want to go to nursing school. So when Dusty decided not to reenlist after six years, we moved to Oregon to be closer to family and uh, his family. And I immediately started school. It was like right out of the gate. Started going to school and it was a lot of work because I had my son halfway through school. Um, well, and you were you had a drive, right? So you was, were working full time. Yes. You had you had two children in diapers. Yes. And you were driving, what, an hour to school? An hour one way to school. So mm-hmm. I worked every Friday, Saturday, Sunday night shift, mm-hmm. albeit 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., which worked better for our schedules because my husband worked day shifts. So I would be at work all night. He'd be at work all day. We would have a limited need for daycare that way, but it meant I was not getting a lot of sleep. Mm-hmm as a night shift person, but I would work Friday, Saturday, Sunday, night shift. I'd get home Monday morning. Dusty and I would exchange the kids. I would drop them off at daycare and I would go to school and I'd be at school all day long. And there were times where I was awake 36 hours at a time. And I look back at that now and I'm like, there's absolutely no way at my age (laughs) I could do that again. Uh Uh-huh. I have no clue. Maybe it was the mom mode in me where you go on limited sleep anyways, raising babies and and toddlers that don't sleep well, that Mm -hmm. gave me the oomph to be able to pursue pursue that and make it through those really long hours of no sleep. But it took me four years of doing that routine to make it through nursing school. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I wasn't successful the first time. I failed. Like, I think it was first semester, first year of nursing school. So you have all your prerequisites and support classes you have to go through. And I was a 4.0 student, which made me so proud that I was working full time. I had two young children and I was able to maintain a 4.0 GPA despite my learning disabilities. I feel like I, I had made it a long way. I was so proud of myself. And then I get into the nursing program and it was like downhill from there. It was so difficult to try to pace myself. I was in the first distance nursing program, which meant that I was doing it online or via television. Mm-hmm. It was a, a new nursing program that the college was trying to erect to help those rural areas in Oregon produce nursing nurses for their small critical access hospitals. Mm -hmm. And I realized very quickly and struggled right out of the gate in that program because it's hard to stay self-driven when you're in the house with the kids and the chores and the responsibilities to try to stay on task and get everything done. And you don't have that support like you would when you're in class to ask the teachers. You're having to email or you're having to f- make a phone call or... But you were doing Zoom education before Zoom education was that, a thing. Oh, yeah. With dial-up. Woohoo! <laughs> so, was yeah. that with your Yahoo account? That was your, with my Yahoo. Your, your AOL? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It but was you, crazy. But you made it through. I did. So I, did. I mean, I, any... I went right back to it. They, they said you can go back and, and rejoin the in-class stuff, and uh, and I did. Yeah. Well, you, now you have a bachelor's of nursing, right? I did, yeah. And now you're looking at actually um, doing the next, the next step up. What is that? <laughs> well, you know, I think any nurse can tell you it's always continuing to learn, mm-hmm. continuing to pursue education. You always want to be the best 
nurse possible. You sure. want to stay current on education and learn new things and did, um, did be you, innovative. Did you tell any of your patients that you whipped me in the face when we were kids? No. But that's that's your idea of um, bedside manner? No. No? No. Should I tell our listeners sure what can. happened? We were, we were, we had this, on the farm, we lived in this beautiful old house. It was a hundred years old. And the porch was this like, uh, finished off porch. And that's where we would wait for the school bus to drive in. And Megan and I got in this vicious fight and she picked, the, picked up the horse whip and smacked me across the face. And I, I turned when it hit me and I, and I went right into the, the porch glass. Thank you, sister. You're so welcome. So that's your idea Love of care. You. Anyway, for, for all of Megan's patience, I'm sorry. But, but now you have BSN, you're looking at doing the nurse practitioner thing, which is another four years of school. Three. It is. Well, my thought is, is I could, uh, if I go big, I got to go really big. So I could go back to school and I could get my nurse practitioner license with just a master's. But if I'm going to go to school... I might as well go to school and get my doctorate yeah. as a nurse practitioner. So it is it is my dream to pursue that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you, you can't do that. You're going to you're not going to succeed. Shush. <laughs> you're just a meager woman. <laughs> so don't go do that, okay? Oh my goodness. I I uh <laughs> Does I'm that give gonna... you the motivation you need? Yeah, right. Okay. I uh I don't know when I'll when I'll do that though. I I've spent most of my adult life in school, which takes away from my children. So I have one kid left at home. He's a senior this year. Mm-hmm. Yay, Bo. I know he listens to. Bo Sifer. We love you, buddy. Buddy. So he's my last child at home. And I think once he graduates, I can definitely pursue that education a little bit more mm-hmm. in depth. So now for your kids who are listening, I know that... I, I look at our relationship with our mother and, and she being a single parent, she worked her butt off. And then we had the farm, which means we didn't get to see her as often as we'd like. But as adults, I think we can better appreciate the sacrifices she made so that we could have the things that we wanted. And I wonder, do your kids know what you sacrificed for them? I I don't know to what extent they realize that I, I, you know, when Sienna came here and lived with you after she graduated and then she came home, she verbalized to me that she had a little resentment that I wasn't always there for her and that, you know, my job was more important to me. And it's interesting to look at her perspective and that's, that's her right. But I'm hoping with some age and maturity, she'll look back and say, wow, my mom busted her butt to be able to get the education to provide for us, to be able to let me do the things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I think just some age and maturity and time, I she'll get it, there. It changes your perspective a lot. It does. It? Yeah. It does. When you're when you're thrust into a situation, it, it gives you that foresight to, to be able to see what other people struggle with. Yeah. Well... I'll say that when you move here to South Carolina, hopefully sooner than five years, but we'll, we'll go with five years, you'll be able to pursue that doctorate's degree and I can help you. And, you know, I've got my horses. You've been riding Leia since you've been here this week. Oh, I love her. Big and I, I think you've kind of fallen in love with the breed. Am I right? I do love the breed. Yeah, I think I think they're great. I The older I get, you know, when we were young, we wanted those fast, spunky horses. I don't Maybe know what it did. is. I did not want that. I don't know what it is about. I, I am an adrenaline junkie. I always have been. I like that. And so, you know, when I was younger, I liked the idea of a, a, a spirited, faster horse. Not as spirited as your horse was. But I didn't want, I wanted a peanut roller quarter horse, but I got the high spirited Arabian that my mom wanted. (laughs) So we get what we get. But the older, the older I get, the fatter and lazier I want my horse to be. For sure. Um, More woe than go. That's right. Yeah. Well, Leia has that in abundance. Yeah. So I, I, um, I told Stacy the other day that I, I would like to, if Leia throws another stud colt, I would like to keep it. Mm-hmm. She can geld him for me and train him until I get here, and then he could be my riding buddy. Yeah. Well, there you have it. 
You can't you can't not meet a Brabant and not fall in love with them and and want to have one. They're great. They're they're big old babies. Well, we've been chatting a while, and I appreciate you sitting with me. I'm wondering, is there anything that we forgot to talk about that's pertinent? Oh, there's always stuff Something. we could talk about. We could do a thousand podcasts and still not cover everything. Everything. Well, we the good thing is we have several birthdays to get together, and we can do some follow-up. For all of my listeners out there, if you have any questions for my sister, please visit everythingstacy.com and leave your feedback, leave your questions, and I'll do my best next week to do some follow-ups. I'm, I talk to my sister on the regular, so I'll be happy to pass that on to her. Um, she's Megan Dittmore if you want to follow her on social media. And I love you. I love you too. And I will carry these scars you created on my arm with pride. <laughs> and, and you... And you are the best. I always look up to you. I love you. Well, everybody, I hope you've had a good new year. We have 2021 or 2020 extended, depending on what your outlook is. But I I am a glass half full. So 2021 is a new year. Let's make a good one. We are the change. We are the energy. You get back what you put out. So with that mindset, I'm going to have a great day today. I am too. And I look forward to chatting with y'all next week. I'm Stacy, and this is everything. I hope you are well. Thank you, everybody.